This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And if I were to throw open the sash and yell, I'm mad as hell, you'd hear the traffic whizzing by on West Century Boulevard and you'd hear the uh, the jets uh, taking off and landing at LAX. Uh, coming to you live from Los Angeles, uh, friends, welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, May the 6th. Uh, 2012. And um, actually, immediately following this uh, program, I'm going to jump uh, on, a, on a plane and uh, head back to Toronto, uh, catching the uh, the 12.30 a.m. Is that is that the red eye? Is that uh, technically called the red eye? I'm not sure. Uh, however, a great uh, three, three and a half days spent here in uh, sunny Southern California. And California is uh, really a hotbed of uh, conspiracy and ufology. If I mean, if if there was a uh, a place to go, I mean, this is the ultimate place to go, is what I'm trying to say. If you're into uh, uh, conspiracies and occultism, and uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. Uh, Adam Go Rightly, a, a self-described certified crackpot historian, I'll let him explain what that is. He also is described as a 23rd degree Discordian. Uh, not to be confused with a 33rd degree Mason, uh, but if I can just digress a moment and give you sort of the radio equivalent of the um, the vacation slideshow, uh, was down in um, I can't tell you the exact location. Uh, I've been sworn to secrecy, but I did find out where Ed Decker is is, is hiding out. Uh, Ed Decker, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, and is walking around. He says with a um, kind of a target on his back. Uh, because of, you know, he's revealed the secrets, the secret handshakes and all of that. And uh, anyway, I, I got to meet Ed on the trip. And, um, um, you know, not only did he show me the uh, the secret uh, handshake, uh, but a whole lot more. And, and eventually, you know, I'll tell you uh, more about that. Uh, what else can I tell you about the trip? We were, um, oh, we, we came in, of course, with the, uh, the, uh, the immortal words of Howard Beale, uh, the late, great Peter Finch, who I suppose should be the patron saint of the, uh, the conspiracy show. And uh, he, of course, uh, before receiving his uh, Academy Award, uh, posthumously passed away not too far from here in the, uh, the, the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Um, anyway, a great show for you this evening. Uh, welcome aboard. And uh, for those 
view uh, keeping score at home, we've got uh, a late scratch. Uh, I, I, I don't want to make light because uh, we were to speak with uh, Grant Jeffrey uh, tonight. Uh, Grant was going to speak about global surveillance and is um, written about it in a, in a book called The Shadow Government, how the secret global elite is using surveillance against you. And um, just got word later this afternoon that Grant Jeffrey is uh, very, very sick. He's in hospital. So uh, our best wishes for a speedy recovery. Our prayers go out to, uh, to Grant and uh, uh, Grant's lovely wife, uh, Kay. So we're thinking of you, Grant and Kay, at this time. And uh, let's be positive. We're going to reschedule the program. So what we've done is uh, we've moved uh, the batting order around here a little bit. And uh, Adam Gorightly is going to join us. He, the uh, author, his latest is Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide. He is, as I say, a self-described certified crackpot historian, 23rd degree Discordian. And um, he's here to share, uh, well, as I said, California is just uh, the place for uh, uh, parapolitics and, and uh, bizarre destinations He's, uh, he's going to describe the most interesting folks and figures involved in conspiracy, ufology, occultism, discordian hijinks, death cults, and more. And uh, we're very happy to have Adam Go-Rightly here on The Conspiracy Show. Adam, how are you? Oh, very good, uh, Richard. Long time no talk to. It has been a while. Thank you for, uh, for coming on board. And we should also mention, um, you know, for those that were in, you know, interested in the whole zine, uh, the zine world back in the 80s, you were a major contributor uh, to a, a number of zine uh, publications. And uh, uh, many people will know you, of course, for your articles on UFO magazine, Paranoia, which is one of my favorite magazines, Steam Shovel Press. And um, you also have written The Shadow Over Santa Susanna, Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos. And uh, also, The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. Uh, Adam, you and I sat down uh, uh, earlier today, and you know your ability to connect dots is, is just, uh, I was gobsmacked the way that you, you, know, you can jump effortlessly and seamlessly from uh, you know, uh, uh, Jim Morrison, uh, John Lennon, John Hinckley. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you, you're, uh, we're sort of toiling in the same uh, vineyards, uh, but you, know, you have such an eloquence and a, and a, and a poetic uh, style. It's, um, it's quite remarkable. Hey, well, uh, thank you. When you start going down those rabbit holes, you start finding that everything seems to be uh, connected. So, uh, I mean, this is a hotbed for, I mean, Southern, not just Southern California, but I guess California uh, as, as a whole. But I, I want to get your take on this because you're, you're not mocking it's not mocking, but you do have some fun, um, you know, at the expense. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just your literary style, I suppose. But would you consider yourself when it comes to things like the paranormal and, uh, and ufology, let's say, and conspiracies, are you a hardened skeptic? Uh, are, you, are you very open to these things? How would you describe yourself? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm open to all this stuff. I try to approach it uh, skeptically, but I'm an open-minded skeptic. <laughs> I'm not going in to uh, debunk something if I'm presented with uh, a conspiracy theory per se or some type of paranormal activity, but I want to look at it uh, 
objectively with an open mind. So perhaps I'm an open-minded skeptic uh, would be the best way of terming it. But, you know, I myself have had some strange experiences, paranormal experiences when I was younger and uh, conspiratorial type uh, of experiences uh, when you delve into this stuff and go down uh, that rabbit hole. I previously uh, mentioned you open yourself up to a lot of uh, high weirdness, and there's been times in my life where my paranoia got ratcheted uh, up a little bit, and I suspected that I was being or surveilled or uh, monitored. All right, listen, why don't we uh, take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to delve further into Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide coming to you live from LA this is Richard Serrett and the conspiracy show stay with us the truth is not out there it's right here the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio AM 740 a little bit later in the program Thomas Fusco author of Beyond the Cosmic Veil I'll give you more details as the hour progresses right now Adam Go Rightly. Uh, is the author of his newly released Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide. And, of course, we're right smack dab in the middle of it here in Southern California. And uh, you sort of cut out there uh, towards the end uh, before I went to break, Adam, and I wanted just to follow up briefly. You you, uh, mentioned uh, that uh, you suspected that you were being surveilled. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, perhaps uh, monitored at one time or another, I interviewed, uh, and it has to do with different projects I was working on. The first time I thought something strange was going on when I entered, uh, interviewed Ira Einhorn back in the late uh, 90s. Einhorn was a pretty shadowy uh, character who was uh, eventually convicted of the murder of his girlfriend, but he had all types of intelligence connection. You may remember the story, and he... Uh, they, he was on the lam for several years and ended up in France, where uh, it took him many years. The U.S. Uh, was able to get him extradited and finally put him on uh, trial. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, Einhorn was knee-deep into conspiracy lore and looking into Tesla, Tesla technology and sharing this information back in the early days of the uh, 70s. And uh, eventually he claimed that he was... Uh, Oh, uh, hoodwinked by the CIA, and they basically set him up for the murder of his girlfriend, Holly Maddox. And during the period I was, I did the first interview with Einhorn in the uh, late 90s, and there was definitely some weirdness going on with email, and I could tell things were being monitored. And this happened on other projects as uh, well when I interviewed uh, Robert Ann Ton Wilson and some other folks for my. Carrie Thornley book, you always heard that telltale click on the other end of the line. And one other thing, I when I interviewed uh, Wilson at his place in Santa Cruz back in uh, 2000, a friend of mine recorded that interview. And uh, when I got back home, I, a couple weeks passed, I asked him, well, what happened to the cassette tape? Okay, he said, I'm getting it in the mail to you. Several months passed. <laughs> I never saw it. I figured it got lost in the mail. Then one day... It showed up in my uh, mailbox. It was obviously somebody had gone through it, uh, listened to the tape, then uh, closed the package back up and uh, sent it to me. So 
there was always that uh, surrounding Robert Glad Anton Wilson. Whenever Sorry. I interviewed him, at, uh, once again, it felt like our conversations were being monitored. Uh, and, and this one maybe as well. Uh, I want to dive into the book here. Um, and, and I want to also give people a sense of your writing style. And, and uh, I'm just going to grab a, a few uh, lines here. When one thinks of Southern California cults, Charles Manson and his harem of knife-wielding waifs, I love that, harem of knife-wielding waifs, are usually the first to come to mind. But the very same but the very same Santa Susana mountain range that hosted Charlie's Angels has been home to any number of similarly twisted cults. One in particular was the Blackburn cult, known officially as the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, or the Great Eleven Club. Now tell me about the, this Great Eleven Club, because I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, I came across some information about uh, them. There's uh, not a lot of info, but they were based out of that same area, those Santa Susana Knolls, where uh, Manson and his squad was uh, situated. And this was a uh, crew that got into the, some of the same weirdness of Manson. You know, this was back in the 30s, as I would recall, and they were having... Uh, sexual ritualistic orgies and uh, turned into a scandal when one of the uh, members got baked in an oven which was supposedly to uh, cure this member of a blood malady. They, they killed the individual and the uh, eventually this uh, cult skipped uh, town and I think they ended up around uh, Lake Tahoe but it, there's been a number of cults in that uh, same area. Some might not term, term them cults per se, but there was also a group called the Fountain of the World, and the leader was a uh, Christian Aventa, and this was in the uh, 50s. And um, he, uh, the uh, female members of his uh, flock, he uh, was having uh, sex with to uh, take him to a higher level of consciousness, I guess, and uh, some of the uh, male members, uh, the husbands of those wives, took umbrage with that and eventually uh, uh, dynamited their compound and blew Krishna Venta and a bunch of his uh, uh, followers to smithereens. Uh, that same uh, cult or religious order was still around in the uh, 60s. They had rebuilt their compound and the, the Manson family uh, would go over and try to recruit some of those members of the Fountain of the World so that uh, area right there is just uh, rich with this uh, sordid history. What is it? Is it, is it something in the water, something in the air? What, what is it about uh, this particular area, uh, area that uh, uh, tends to, um, I don't know, be, be occupied by all these different cults? I think, you know, it could perhaps have something to, to do with an energy spot, and I've looked into this with a lot of my research. It's, there's parts of the Southern California desert, for instance, it's a little different, but there's where you've had all these UFO uh, sightings over the years going back to the late uh, 50s, so, you know, uh, it might be a certain energy uh, spot, they call them UFO windows, or occultists call them gateways, and so maybe these cults are attracted to uh, similar type of uh, energy spots. Uh, who knows? And also, uh, you know, those that was a pretty uh, remote area back in the uh, day. You could get away. You're outside of the city, and it's something you could be more secluded and, uh, you know, uh, run your cult as you wished. 
Uh, we go from the, uh, as you call them, the knife-wielding waifs of, uh, of Charlie Manson uh, to the 60s screen starlet Tuesday Weld. I love this one. Uh, this is part of something called the Jeffrey Turner Experience, and it, it involves a, a worldwide Illuminati conspiracy engineered by none other than, as I as the aforementioned, Tuesday Weld. Uh, first of all, <laughs> what is the Jeffrey Turner experience, and and uh, and who put together this uh, this conspiracy involving Tuesday Weld? Well, the, we call it the Jeffrey Turner experience because meeting this individual is like uh, you know experiencing uh, Jimi Hendrix back on the day back in the day on a. Uh, hit of some uh, mind-blowing substances. That's what Jeff Turner does <laughs> whenever you've, uh, if you ever get an opportunity to meet this uh, fellow. He's a walking ex encyclopedia of uh, conspiracies, and he also claims to have been involved in all of these wide-ranging conspiracies, one of them uh, being uh, his uh, meeting with uh, Tuesday Weld and his discovery that she was Indeed, at least according to Jeffrey Turner, an Illuminati high priestess who during the late 60s saw over the, uh, the whole Illuminati hierarchy that helped influence the 60s counterculture with uh, rock music and the whole psychedelic movement. And, you know, at face value, this sounds pretty dang far out, but... Uh, as I looked deeper into this and started asking other people about uh, Tuesday Weld, I started getting information <laughs> coming in from other sources that Tuesday Weld was indeed connected. Whether Jeff Turner has the story completely right, I'm not uh, sure, but I've heard from other sources that there seems to be something about this whole Tuesday Weld uh, Conspiracy, and I kind of touched a nerve, I think, when I put this uh, story out into the uh, world. It's kind of, uh, it was originally published in my uh, book, The Beast of Adam Go Rightly, then a follow up article in uh, Paranoia Magazine. It's one of those memes that's uh, continued to grow, and I never have heard anything from uh, Tuesday Weld refuting this, so who knows? Well, you know, if she's uh, if she hasn't refuted it, it must be true. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wish I had known uh, about Tuesday Weld before I had uh, conversed with Ed Decker. Uh, you know, talking about the dark side of Freemasonry. But all but all kidding aside, and, and you mentioned there is a, a potential kernel of truth uh, to all of this. You and I talked a little earlier today about. Um, uh, the uh, you know the the Beatles as a uh, a, a psychological a psyop basically a creation of Tavistock and the British invasion was was just that a British invasion and I guess designed to distract and dumb down uh, American culture and 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 so forth um, and you you some uh, you mentioned something else to me that I was totally unaware of or I didn't make the connection uh, and that is this Laurel Canyon group which is not too far from here uh, where I'm sitting. Uh, you know, this group of, of, of musicians who might have also been part of that, that conspiracy. Yeah, I have to give props to a, a researcher by the name of Dave McGowan. He was really the first one to tap into this and look at the backgrounds of all these rock stars that came out of the Laurel Canyon uh, scene. And this was in the mid to late 60s, all these folks from Neil Young to, you know, the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Mamas and the Papas, Jim Morrison, 
uh, Frank Zappa, on and on. They all came out of Laurel Canyon and uh, seemingly overnight became <laughs> these huge sensations. And uh, McGowan, bless his heart, has tracked uh, these folks and their families. And uh, more often than not, they come from military or intelligence uh, backgrounds. And it was the same situation uh, with the uh, Manson family. You also had those uh, connections uh, with a lot of the members of that group as well, that they came from military intelligence uh, backgrounds. And somehow, you know, the uh, ideas here is that that was all orchestrated, that 60s counterculture to say, uh, as you said, perhaps dumb down or uh, condition the uh, youth movement, perhaps to take steam out of the anti-war movement, get people more focusing on tripping the light uh, fantastic. So it's pretty interesting. Morrison, as we uh, talked about today, uh, crazily enough, his uh, father was an admiral for a battleship that was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was basically a false flag event that uh, launched the uh, Vietnam War. Listen, we'll, um, we'll delve further into happy trails to high weirdness with uh, Adam Gorightly, and we have to find out what is meant by a crackpot historian and 23rd degree discordian. Uh, stay with us, The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from Los Angeles. Back with more. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Welcome back. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. And uh, the website for both the television show and the radio program is, it's very simple, really. Coincidentally, www.theconspiracyshow.com. That is your portal to all the information you need regarding the radio and the TV program. Incidentally, if um, you uh, you didn't, if you missed some episodes of the TV program from seasons one and two, uh, they're in Canada anyway. You can uh, you can view them online, visiontv.com, and um, just uh, in a search engine on the Vision site, just type in the Conspiracy Show, and it'll take you to a page, and all of the uh, the episodes from our first two seasons are right there. Adam Go Rightly is with us. Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide. And uh, Adam, what do you mean by a crackpot historian? <laughs> um, I basically, you know, I write about uh, quote-unquote crackpots uh, like uh, Kerry Thornley, people who are definitely uh, not your normals in society, uh, Charles Manson or a roller derby uh, star like Ronnie Raines. So I'm kind of a crackpot historian, but you could also uh, perhaps interpret that to mean I'm a crackpot. Uh, it's just one of those <laughs> little plays I uh, play on words I came up with uh, to describe myself. And you know, when I do lectures and stuff, I caution people that I take this uh, area of inquiry ser uh, seriously, you know, the paranormal and conspiracy, but I also uh, uh, advise them to not, uh, that I don't take myself too seriously, so don't you either. I like to have uh, fun with the topic. If you don't have fun with conspiracies, uh, they'll drive you crazy. It's so true, you know, and at the end of the day, in many instances, you have to laugh because if you don't, you'll cry. Uh, you, uh, 
I'm gathering uh, travel around to a lot of the uh, the ex exhibitions or the conventions rather the UFO conventions conspiracy con. Um, I mean, do you do you like do you have a fondness for these people or just between you know the two of us, Adam? Do you find occasionally some of them the, the devotees? They're almost like groupies. Do you find them a little disturbing? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> but it's interesting to observe that environment and uh, what goes on at these uh, conventions or whatever. It's, sometimes I have the quote-unquote backstage access so I can uh, be kind of behind the scenes and see who are the divas who take themselves too seriously, who, who are full of you-know-what, and... Uh, I also enjoy going to these conventions because you talk to people. Um, sometimes I'll have a table there set up, and you'll have uh, people with authentic experiences, mind control victims, come up with to you to uh, share their stories. And they're also great. Uh, you can get, uh, like I said, behind the scenes and have a few cocktails with some of these movers and shakers and find out more about them as well uh, beyond uh, – what their favorite conspiracy is, maybe what uh, baseball team they like or their sexual preferences. So that's kind of why I like not so much taking in the uh, lectures, the lectures themselves, but uh, seeing what goes be on behind the scenes. I guess case in point would be the uh, the annual uh, Roswell uh, uh, Festival, which has become, I mean, Roswell has almost entered the realm of schlockdom. Uh, although, I mean, for ufologists, I mean, it's it's a very significant event, and it, it tends to be overshadowed now, uh, you know, because of the uh, sort of the cartoonish way that they've they've sort of capitalized on on the venue and and, and marketed it and so forth. Well, but but uh, you've met some pretty interesting characters over the years at Roswell. Uh, um, Peter Robbins, I know, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Peter Robbins, and he is a very eloquent uh, orator on the subject of UFOs. But uh, share with me some of the other interesting characters, uh, including Peter, if you wish, at uh, at uh, Roswell. Well, yeah, once again, it's a place to uh, hang out with uh, <laughs> friends. I Actually, with my uh, buddy Greg Bishop, we got to be in the uh, parade they have it. Uh, they used to have it Roswell every year during the convention time and the anniversary. I guess they've quit having that uh, parade. Um, I was uh, some of those characters. It was 2007 when I was there, and that was the uh, 60th. Is that right? 60th anniversary. Uh, well, and, 40, uh, July 47. So yeah, it would be 60 years. And uh, a lot of times you'll have a lot of the same speakers staying at a uh, the same hotel. So I remember waking up one morning, I was hanging out with uh, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, and some of the other leading lights showed up, uh, Stanton Friedman and Bruce Maccabee, and, you know, we were having uh, the free cornflakes and whatever coffee. And uh, this individual s sat down and started, uh, and he was a speaker, obviously, but I didn't know wh who he was, and he started going off on the whole disclosure thing and how uh, Hillary or Bill Richardson were, was going to be the disclosure candidate, and he was just going a mile a minute. You know, this is the first thing I was more concerned with, <laughs> getting a couple of cop cop cup of coffees and clearing the uh, cobwebs, and this guy was... Uh, really going off. 
And as we parted uh, company and I was, uh, we were going back, uh, getting ready to go to the event venue, I asked uh, Nick Redfern, uh, who's that character? And he said, well, that's uh, Rit, uh, Stephen Bassett. And I go, does he uh, believe all of that uh, stuff? And he goes, oh, yeah, he is uh, quite sincere, of course. In recent years, I've learned more about uh, Mr. Bassett and uh, the uh, disclosure uh, movement he i think he's i don't think there's anybody excuse me adam i don't think there's anybody who takes it more seriously i mean this guy has sacrificed everything uh and talk about a guy you know whether you believe he's right or wrong who who puts it who put his money where his mouth is i mean he's laid it all on the line and i think suffered you know greatly financially and perhaps even health-wise so i think in that respect you have to really admire him yeah, I didn't realize it was affecting his health. That's unfortunate if that's going on. I know he spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars putting on conferences and trying to get the uh, message out there. So you get the, these uh, sincere uh, folks that have a, a deep passion. Now, I, I don't necessarily uh, believe we're going to see disclosure anytime soon. Uh, if ever, but uh, you know, th these are the types of intense individuals you'll find at these events. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Nick Redfern, who, who uh, another uh, you know a great interview I've I've had the pleasure of speaking with, and uh, you mentioned here in in uh, this chapter. I'm, I'm not going to mention the name of the chapter. I don't know if I can on Family Radio, but <laughs> well, what the heck? It's Roswell. That biatch ain't dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> in any uh, in any case, you you mentioned uh, that to some uh, these you know the Roswell uh, devotees that the challenging the sort of the dead alien hypothesis is just like it's like sacrilege, and yet oh. and here you have you have Nick Redfern, who has a, a, an entirely different take uh, on on what happened at Roswell, sort of wading into the maelstrom. How was his message received there? Uh, yeah, like the figurative, uh, how can I phrase this? The something in the punch bowl? <laughs> right, right. He, he presented an alternate theory, and he didn't necessarily buy into the uh, theory 100%, but his, and he presented the theory from his book, Body Snatchers in the uh, Desert, that it was actually, the crash was some type of, uh, test experiment the government was doing with these uh, folks who have that disease called Prejarans. I think it's uh, how it uh, is pronounced that, you know, these folks who look all uh, pasty skinned and bald headed and with, and, uh, and so th th that basically these unfortunate individuals were used as uh, test crash dummies. And he presented that at uh, Roswell and got a lot of uh, flack from the um, audiences, the audience there, and who challenged Nick. And Nick, uh, he really impressed the hell out of me. I was just getting to know the guy, but uh, he basically turned it uh, back on them and, uh, you know, uh, made some sound uh, points. But, yeah, that's what you do. It's a tourist industry there in uh, Roswell. On the aftermath of 2007, they were actually going to uh, put in a uh, UFO alien abduction amusement park, of all things. But uh, apparently, with the, when the the economy went uh, south a few years back, uh, that never materialized. 
But yeah, so thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be this high to get probed. So yeah, so there's that party line there about uh, they're aliens and they're good aliens and that uh, you know it was the it was uh, aliens who crashed in the uh, desert there in uh, Roswell and that's basically the uh, party line and when you go against that yeah you're going against the uh, for one thing the economy of uh, Roswell which uh, is basically driven at least once a year by this big event. Yeah, and it's uh, unfortunately, as I said earlier, it sort of overshadowed the uh, the actual event itself, and you know whether you believe or not in what happened on, on in July of forty seven. Uh, it's certainly uh, uh, worth delving into. Uh, Adam, go rightly. Happy trails to high weirdness. A conspiracy theorists tour guide. Of course, uh, obviously now we're in Roswell. We've we've uh, we've moved from California into New Mexico, which probably has to rank a close second to California in terms of uh, uh, you know bizarre destinations. And as you point out. Uh, because you've got this, you know, this confluence of uh, you've got the 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 the, uh, the nuclear uh, testing that has gone on in in New Mexico. You've got you've got the uh, the multiple stories of crashed uh, flying saucers. Uh, but then, um, uh, in amongst all that, there's uh, a lot of uh, sort of free Freemason Freemasonic uh, conspiracies. I mentioned you know mm-hmm. speaking with Ed Decker, but uh, uh, tell me about Shelby uh, James Shelby Downward on, and and his take on Freemasonry. James Shelby Downard, yeah, and I wrote a book previously called James Shelby Downard's Mystical War, and uh, Downard based a lot of his uh, theories on uh, the uh, latitude and longitude and uh, ley lines, and that uh, a lot of these um, Masonic rituals were perpetrated on the 33rd uh, degree calls it mystical toponymy and it's uh, for instance uh, if you follow the 33rd degree uh, latitude across the country it starts in uh, Disneyland which uh, some people suspect uh, was built on a uh, power spot my friend Walter uh, Bosley gets into this he's written uh, quite a bit of material on it and uh, you know there's stories that uh, Uncle Walt himself, uh, Walt Disney, was a, a Freemason. You have the, uh, the very mysterious Club 33 30, at uh, Disneyland, 33 being the highest degree in discordianism, excuse me, Freemasonry. So if you follow that line across the country, it uh, goes through uh, New Mexico and Roswell happened on the 33rd degree and keep following it into Texas. And that's where Daly Plaza is located, uh, where Kennedy was assassinate, assassinated in 1963. And Downard contended it was all part of this grand Masonic uh, ritual that was uh, orchestrated to happen on the 33rd degree. And the number three comes up again and again in the uh, Kennedy uh, assassination and uh, it's interesting, I kind of brought up a lot of these connections in my piece on Roswell as I was uh, driving around town. I saw Freemasonic uh, license plates and uh, Freemasonic stuff everywhere. It's the best place in the world if you want to go buy uh, Freemason trinkets to go into some of the thrift stores. All right, we'll, uh, 
we'll take a time out, uh, Adam. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm just you mentioned uh, Walt Disney and the Freemasons and, and the Thirty Third Club. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to get this image out of my head, and perhaps over the break I will. And that's uh, Annette Funicello drinking blood from a human skull. <laughs> we will come back. Adam, go rightly. Happy trails to high weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide, and uh, we'll take a quick time out when we come back. More of the same here on the Conspiracy Show AM seven forty. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Live from Los Angeles, and uh, coming up in about, uh, let's see, 20 minutes' time, Beyond the Cosmic Veil, I'll uh, speak with an independent researcher to discuss his theory of supernatural mechanics, and he utilizes a model based in part on a lost uh, biblical cosmology. He says it's been hidden in plain view for a century. Thomas P. Fusco uh, affirms his uh, framework can explain the workings of miracles, psychic phenomena, and paranormal phenomena. As far as I know, Thomas Fusco is not featured in Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a conspiracy theorist's tour guide, but if there's a volume two, perhaps. Uh, and uh, I am, in fact, speaking with the wrong Reverend Houdini Kundalini of the Church of Unwavering Indifference, uh, a.k.a. Adam Go Rightly. Uh, is that going to be on your tombstone? Hey, I hadn't given that much thought, but uh, maybe it should be, yeah. And perhaps I'll be buried next to Emperor Norton. <laughs> uh, you also describe yourself as a 23rd degree Discordian. Uh, what does that mean? Boy, I shouldn't uh, put all this stuff on my books. Uh, people uh, <laughs> will immediately write me off as a total joker, which I explained before I'm not. But uh, Discordianism uh, is a, a spoof religion. It was started in the late uh, 50s by a guy named Kerry Thornley, and I write about this book, The Prankster and the Conspiracy, and it was a uh, spoof religion that a couple guys made up uh, teenagers in a bowling alley in the late 50s, and it was based upon the worship of the Greek goddess of chaos and discord, Eris, or Eris, as it's uh, pronounced differently by other uh, people, so... I am a uh, member of the Discordian uh, Society, and the most holy number in Discordianism is 23, so I've labeled myself a 23rd degree Discordian. There you go. Uh, now, 23, was that, was that the, uh, the Jim Carrey movie, everything revolving around the number 23? Yeah, it, it was as well, and this whole mythology started back, um, if you're familiar with the uh, writer William S. Burroughs. Yes. In the, yeah, back in the, uh, must have been in the uh, 50s, he was living in Tangiers, and he met a uh, captain, I'm trying to remember the uh, captain of a uh, ship, uh, and uh, trying to remember the whole story, but it was all related about uh, the number uh, 23, and, uh, oh, I'm not... Uh, 
was a fascinating. The Jim Carrey movie was was um, was fascinating for those who haven't seen it. I really recommend it. A total departure for Jim Carrey. But uh, I've talked to numerologists, and there seems to be something to this number twenty three. I mean, it seems to be one of those those numbers. I don't know whether it's you know part of the matrix or what have you, but it just it it seems to uh, pop up when you whether you're talking about. Um, I don't know something to do with the the the, uh, the, uh, the, the biochemistry of the body. The number twenty three is all over the place. Uh, it's um, I don't know. There's there's something about the, the, that number, and um, it could be sort of a self fulfilling prophecy. You know, you, if you want if you want to decide to form a religion around the number twenty nine, you could probably look for examples where twenty nine is everywhere. We um, I, I was sort of joking about uh, your uh, your alias and whether you're going to put that on your tombstone, and I just. Uh, uh, I want to depart from the book just for a second and go back to a conversation you and I had earlier. Uh, and uh, we were talking about uh, Jim Morrison, again, I guess part of that Laurel Canyon group. And um, you told me something very interesting. Back in December, I remember the story well, there was a um, sort of a, a serial arsonist at work um, in and around, I guess, Los Angeles. And one of the houses, well, you tell me the story, one of the houses that, that, uh, that, that burned um, has kind of an interesting, uh, interesting story behind it. Well, the first house in the series of arson fires was uh, Jim Morrison's house on Love Street. That's where that uh, song came from, uh, She Lives on Love Street. And that was a song about his wife, Pamela Corson. And so uh, in the aftermath of that uh, fire, there were several uh, series of fires, but I thought it was interesting at the time. It was, you know, I heard it was Jim Morrison's uh, house, and I started hearing the song, Light My Fire in My Brain, or Come On Baby, Light My Fire. And I thought, uh, wow, what if, could it be possible? You've heard these uh, rumors about Jim Morrison still being alive. Perhaps he burned down the uh, house, and what would be his motivation, perhaps to destroy some evidence there that he was uh, still alive? Kind of a uh, crazy, uh, far-out theory, you know. I posited this to a uh, friend of mine. He told me, oh, no, he'd be old and decrepit now from all the drinking and partying that had gone on over the years. But then, you know, there was also these... Uh, stories that Jim got, uh, he faked his death, got uh, clean and sober and has done all kinds of things in the intervening years, like been a rodeo star and a number of other things. So, uh, you know, perhaps there is something to this and the subsequent uh, fires were this diversion fires to take investigators uh, off the uh, track of what was really <laughs> behind that initial fire. Just a uh, thought. There's probably nothing to this, but you never know. Maybe there I, is. Hey, you know what? Um, go. With, I think you got to go with your gut on this one, Adam. I think uh, there might be something to it. Uh, you know, we're hearing stories, of course. Uh, James Douglas Morrison now living in the American Northwest as a as a rancher, and uh, a lot of people have sort of dismissed that and uh, you know said, "Oh, it's just a joke," um, but. I don't know. There's, there, I've spoken to a number of researchers. You and I talked about it too. And if you, uh, if you take the the photo of this uh, this this character, uh, who a um, a rodeo um, uh, operator claims is Jim Morrison, and you now he's in his mid to late sixties. If you overlay that photo of a, of a of a younger picture of Jim Morrison, the points of convergence 
you know, the bump and the bridge of the nose and, and elsewhere, the chin and so forth. It's, it's quite remarkable. And someone told me uh, that 40 points of convergence um, is enough to be considered, you know, a, a slam dunk in, in a court of law. Now, I don't know how many points of convergence there are in this photo. I'd like to know more. But um, I'm maybe, uh, you know, I'm opening myself up to ridicule, but I'm not so quick to, to, to uh, dismiss the possibility that, that, that Jim did, in fact, uh, fake his death. And who knows? Maybe he did light that fire. Yeah, I mean, uh, dying of a heart attack at 27, I know a lot of people dabbled into heavy drug use and all this, but, uh, and as we discussed earlier today, there were uh, a lot of uh, mysteries surrounding uh, his death. You know, there was no autopsy, there was a media blackout, uh, only two people uh, saw him after he uh, was dead, and those it was wife Pamela who has died and the doctor who's uh, disappeared. A whole string of things. Uh, none of the band members or his family members were at the funeral. And when the band members did show up at the uh, gravesite, they thought it was too small to fit Jim into. Uh, as in, as Ray Manzarek noted, if anybody could have faked his death, it was uh, Jim Morrison, the Lizard King. He could do anything. And, and uh, in this uh, gentleman, uh, again, who, who's actually quite publicity shy, I mean, he, he, uh, he's not going around claiming to be Jim Morrison. It's, uh, it's uh, this other individual. Uh, uh, but apparently uh, this individual was arrested on a weapons charge several years ago, uh, was fingerprinted. And so there, I mean, they have now DNA and fingerprint evidence from this fellow if if uh, someone from the Morrison family, I know, I believe he has a brother and a sister still living, his father, the Admiral, passed away several years ago. But if one of those were to, to submit to a DNA test and then compare that with the, uh, the DNA evidence acquired by uh, whatever police department it is up in, uh, in, in Oregon, uh, we'd know the truth. Yeah, and uh, I mean, all of these family connections... Uh these things uh, going on with, uh, you know, his uh, father being the admiral and having high-level uh, security clearance kind of reminds me of the Elvis stories as well, how Elvis met with uh, President Nixon. And uh, there's people who claim that he was doing undercover uh, drug work, you know, so what more convenient uh, way to take these uh, people out of... <laughs> Uh, you know, circulation and have them continue their covert activities and to fake their deaths. I, I want to mention another, uh, uh, you know, rock legend that's actually uh, is featured in Happy Trails to High Weirdness, in, just in a sort of a passing reference. But uh, we go back to California now, and one of the great landmarks in California, of course, is the Joshua Tree, uh, also the name of, uh, you know, perhaps one of the greatest albums of the last 40 years by U2. Uh, but but to talk to me about uh, Graham Parsons uh, and uh, the uh, the Joshua Tree. The uh, yeah, he died in Joshua Tree. Died at the Joshua Tree Inn, and I write write about that in the book. You can go stay in the room, and that's what I uh, did one night, uh, and uh, had kind of a strange experience. But uh, 
Graham Parson loved going out to the Joshua Tree area, and I, as I discovered, uh, he'd spend time out there. He'd uh, oftentimes take magic mushrooms and have a desire to see UFOs, and apparently on one occasion that's exactly what he and uh, Keith Richards did. Not a lot of people have uh, heard this story. And he ended up, uh, Graham ended up ODing in that room at the uh, Joshua Tree Inn. I'm trying to remember the exact number of the room. It might be number eight. Uh, but I kind of had a uh, weird experience. I was hanging out there with some friends, and there, there's cassette tapes, and you can listen to his uh, music, and people sign his diaries. And I've never been a huge uh, Graham Parsons fan, so we're kind of making fun of the music. I thought other uh, there was other country rock folk more influential than... Uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went to sleep that night, and uh, I was woke up by the alarm and a voice that said, it's time to wake up. I kind of... I tried to clear the cobwebs, and what the heck went on there, and went back to sleep. And so I'm not sure what that uh, voice was, but uh, in retrospect, I was thinking, well, maybe it was Graham telling me it was <laughs> time to wake up uh, to his music. Uh, they say that room is uh, haunted as well, and uh, I've seen somebody sent me a uh, photo of, they took of the... Uh, a photograph of the uh, front door that had a ghostly image in it and uh, as I uh, first I didn't see the image but on closer inspection it was kind of eerie and there's a, a shrine there to uh, Graham Parsons as well so that you know that's part of the richness of the uh, that area of the desert once again that was ground zero for the whole uh, saucer movement uh, that started back with Georgia Damsky and also there's something called Giant Rock and the Integratron there that uh, are important uh, part of the uh, UFO history which I write about in the book. And the the, uh, the, uh, the other interesting story about uh, Car uh, Graham Parsons is that um, his wishes of course as you mentioned were, were to be cremated at the Joshua Tree which you can't do you just can't cremate someone so <laughs> Now, was it, was it Kaufman who actually went, did he go to the funeral home and steal Graham Parsons' body, drive him back to the Joshua Tree? And, uh, yeah. I think he's, what is that story? Yeah, that's uh, Phil Kaufman. Let me uh, go deep into my uh, memory banks here. But he was a uh, road manager for the Rolling Stones and uh, Phil Kaufman, pretty influential dude. And... Uh, he was also buddies with uh, Manson in prison, and there was that relationship there. See, everything's uh, connected. But, uh, yeah, he had made a pact with Graham Parsons. If Graham Parsons uh, should die, that uh, he would cremate his uh, remains there at uh, Joshua Tree out in the uh, National uh, Park on a, a certain rock there. And so uh, Kaufman actually went to the... Uh, it was one of the airports in L.A. showed up with a hearse and <laughs> said he was there to pick up the body. And somehow he was able to uh, do that, take the body and take it back out to Joshua Tree and set it on uh, fire and burn the remains. Crazy uh, story, but, you know, Kaufman, he'd made that pact with uh, Graham Parsons, and so he... Uh, 
basically saw it through. And he poured something like five gallons of gasoline on it and, uh, and set up this huge fireball. The, there was a police chase. <laughs> Kaufman <laughs> got away, but they caught up with him a few days later. And uh, uh, I guess at that point, there was no law against stealing a body, but because he stole the coffin, he was fined, I don't know, $750 or something. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's, uh, interesting, like the- this Phil Kaufman, too, he released uh, Charles Manson's first album, The Lie Album, because uh, once he's with, uh, this was the period where Manson, uh, when he got arrested for Tate LaBianca, and they produced this album basically to generate uh, money for a Charles Manson defense fund. And at that time, I guess Kaufman felt that uh, Manson had been set up for the uh, murders. I think he felt differently later. But uh, if you come across the Lie album, it was uh, produced by this fellow, Phil Kaufman, who's still around. Pretty interesting character. Adam Go Rightly in the book is Happy Trails to High Weirdness, a Conspiracy Theorist's uh, Tour Guide. Uh, you've written extensively about the Manson family and, and Charlie Manson. Did you ever get an opportunity to interview Charlie, or, or would you like to? <laughs> I don't know if I'd like to. There's been some opportunities uh, there, but... Uh... I haven't availed myself of them. Uh, yeah, he kind of uh, creeps me out. Uh, I suppose I uh, should have, but... Uh, and uh, apparently now he's only taking... Well, I hear different stories about the uh, visitors. Uh, uh, one of the last things I heard, he was only taking foreign press, and I had some uh, movie uh, producers from Australia that were going to go interview him a couple of years ago and I was going to tag along, but, uh, that never happened. But, uh, Manson, yeah, he stays, uh, busy there in uh, prison. They're continually catching him with, uh, cell phones and doing drug deals and, uh, you know, quite an amazing, uh, individual he is. Well, uh, and- closing, closing in on it. 80 years old now, and uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no downplaying the, the viciousness of, uh, you know, the, the murders that were committed uh, uh, by others, in, I guess, in his name. But, you know, it's, it's amazing that the, the, the people that you see that, that ultimately do get released from, from prison who have, you know, done perhaps far worse with their own hands. Uh, what do you think is really behind, um, I mean, why are they so afraid of Charles Manson? Why are we all so afraid of Charles Manson? Well, I think one of the reasons he's still locked up because he knew a lot of things about, uh, he had a lot of connections there in Hollywood with uh, the music scene and the movie industry. That's, you know, one of the uh, theories, the reason uh, he was basically kind of a scapegoat for those murders. I'm not saying he didn't order them, but... uh, they might have been more in retaliation for drug burns, you know, that whole group there that uh, got murdered, Wojtek Frykowski, along with uh, Sharon Tate and Abigail Folger, were heavily into the drug scene, and there are stories there that the Manson family got burnt. It was retaliation, or, you know, Manson had connections with the uh, mafia as well, and he might have been... Uh, might have been a hit that Manson did for the Mafia. There's all these uh, theories, and that's I think that's one of the reasons he's still locked up. Uh, perhaps he never uh, 
physically he didn't kill anybody uh supposedly he you know ordered those uh murders so it's yeah it's pretty unique that uh, anybody else had, would been would have been released by now but you know he's the uh, poster boy of everything that went wrong with the uh, 60s uh, generation what's uh, what's next for Adam go rightly what are you working on adam I am working on several book projects and a movie we t uh, touched on briefly today called Parafornia, which will be, I think, kind of a companion piece to my uh, book, Happy Trails to High Weirdness. We go around California and interview some of the most interesting people in the state and go to some of the uh, more colorful uh, venues and areas uh, we talked about uh, out there in Joshua Tree and visiting sites like Giant Rock and the Integratron which were ground zero for the whole UFO movement so yeah have that uh, movie going on and uh, several book projects and uh, yeah all right we'll just keep them coming because uh, I'm enjoying them and I know a lot of people else, uh, are as well happy trails to high weirdness of conspiracy theorists uh, tour guide Adam go rightly and that's uh, probably uh, I'm guessing available at uh, amazon.com and uh, all good bookstores Adam thanks for this I thank you Richard it's always fun it was a great pleasure uh, meeting you face to face finally Likewise. when we come back beyond the cosmic veil Thomas P. Fusco stay with us the owners of the system are asleep now we can play the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. For nearly three decades, my next guest has devoted research, his research, into the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and unifying cosmological, oh, sorry, and, and uh, scientific anomalies and paranormal phenomena with the goal with the goal of uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. He is the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality. Thomas P. Fusco, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great, Richard. Thanks for having me. Well, I, uh, when I got your email, uh, you, I mean, the things that you're talking about in your book, you're, I mean, you're ticking all the boxes, the things that we love to talk on this, on this show and things that I'm particularly interested in. And that is, um, uh, you know, scientists are, are all, uh, uh, all about trying to find this one unifying theory of everything. And, um, uh, I mean, on this show, there's this, we discussed sort of this, this, this chasm that's between people like you that are trying, you know, your darndest to find some framework to explain, as you as you pointed out, you know, uh, para, uh, paranormal uh, events and supernatural events and things like that. And then you have the skeptics on the other side who don't want to hear any of that. They don't want to hear any of that. They dismiss it. They won't engage you on the topic. Um, they only know what they can see uh, through, a tel uh, through, a, through a microscope. So I, I really applaud you for trying to bridge that. And... Um, trying to, I guess, find that, that unifying field of everything that's going to link the, the paranormal with what we consider now to be, you know, you know science, science and known science and, and, and things like that. But how did you get down this road? Well, Richard, I had some uh, unusual 
what we would probably call psychic experiences today. Uh, in my teen years, in my early 20s, and it caused me to call into question the model of reality that I had been taught in school and in college, and um, it certainly uh, did not explain the kind of things that I experienced. So being very pragmatic and very scientifically minded, um, I concluded that those models must be wrong. And so I devoted uh, much of my adult life into finding uh, the correct model that would actually give us a picture of what we call the supernatural. Can you just give me a, a, a glimpse into what the, the, the psychic phenomena that you experienced was all about? What happened? Well, uh, Richard, what I uh, normally do uh, uh, in, in talking about this uh, I do have a sample chapter uh, of my book on my website that goes into those things in greater detail, but I uh, have grown to understand that I'm. it's probably not the best thing for me to discuss uh, openly in the air or on the air. I just uh, uh, refer people to the site, and they can read it in greater detail. All right. Um, so this, this sets you on your quest to try and understand um, or, or come to a new framework that would encompass your experiences with the world around you uh, because the the version of reality you'd received in school that we've all received in school uh, didn't account for that. So where does such a journey begin? Well, there were a couple premises that I came to uh, uh, understand early on. Uh, the first thing that, uh, that I came to realize is that the reason why uh, the standard models of physics didn't allow for such things is because they were based on a paradigm that uh, accepted a completely material or physical explanation for everything that occurs in the universe. And according to my understanding, uh, there, there was definitely a part of reality that we observe and witness and experience that is not explained by the physical. And so that was one of the premises that uh, helped me get over uh, sort of the mental barriers, so to speak, that had traditionally existed in this kind of a, a study. Now, uh, the field of, of quantum physics um, is sort of, I think, coming a long way in explaining uh, some of this stuff. I mean, um, this is something that, that uh, really Einstein didn't want to have anything to do with. He called it spooky action at a distance because I, well, why, why, let's, I know that you're a, a, a big fan of Einstein. Can I ask you that? Why was Einstein not comfortable with quantum mechanics? The reasoning behind uh, Einstein's overview of this was not so much that he had something against quantum mechanics. Uh, what he had against was the conclusion that uh, quantum physicists were drawing about the nature of the universe from them. Uh, for example, uh, we know, most people generally know that uh, quantum physics talks about a world of uh, random chance, so to speak, that it uh, talks about the world in terms of probabilities and not, and not definite predictabilities. Einstein felt that this was not truly the nature of the universe, as the quantum physicists were arguing. Einstein maintained 
that this was just an illusion. In other words, the reason why things looked random and unpredictable was because we lacked the ability to gather all of the information that would be necessary and the mathematical algorithms that would be required to actually pin down the reasons why these events looked like they were occurring on the quantum level. Let, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about uh, a, a quantum entanglement, where, you know, the, the idea that the space between objects is, is very uh, illusory and, and uh, a particle, you know, millions of light years away uh, could be in some way connected to a particle right in front of my nose. And, uh, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but do you not think that that alone could explain a lot of uh, 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 psychic abilities that people might have? If we're able to come up with a model that gives us the mechanics behind that type of phenomena, and, and I think that uh, the way you're explaining it, Richard, uh, uh, needs to be reduced in its simplest terms, like what you're trying to do. You can have correlated particles that have opposite quantum polarities, and that pair of particles, let's say photons, they could be split in half, so each one's flying away from each other at the speed of light, but they have opposite polarities. And let's say particle A can be passed through a polarizing filter that reverses its polarity, and its partner, its correlated partner, will instantaneously uh, reverse its own polarity to reestablish that balance, as you said, even if it's hundreds of light years apart from one another, to a distance to where it's even impossible to conceive at multiple speeds of light how the information about the state of particle A could be transmitted instantaneously to particle B. And you are also correct in the idea that this is something that operates very similar to parapsychological phenomena like telepathy or remote viewing. The problem with the current paradigm in science is that it excludes anything that is outside of a physical explanation. So what the quantum physicist has done overall is to just tell us that this is simply the way the universe is put together and that's it. And Einstein would have said, no, no, you don't get away that easy. There has to be an underlying reality that we can't see that where these particles are actually connected in such a way. And there needs to be a mechanical system by which we can explain that process. Thomas Fusco, the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. Now, you've come at this from a slightly different uh, way. Uh, you have, you want, you're here to discuss a theory called supernatural mechanics, and you say it's based in part on a lost biblical cosmology that's been hidden in plain view for centuries. So let's get into this uh, discussion of, of supernatural mechanics. First, what is your definition of supernatural mechanics? It's something like uh, the same kind of term that's, ex that's, that's applied to quantum physics. Quantum mechanics is a system of, uh, of laws and principles by which uh, we describe the type of observations that we see on the quantum level. Supernatural or paranormal mechanics 
is a similarly a set of laws and principles by which we can under ex- understand and explain the type of uh, paranormal observations that we see, uh, especially, uh, for example, in haunted houses, all the various types of phenomena that are seen at the site of hauntings. Uh, and so my phrase supernatural mechanics uh, is that description of, of the processes behind that. And, and you're saying that this is to be found in uh, biblical cosmology, but it's been hidden in plain view. Yes. Uh, the, the biblical cosmology is one of the legs of, of, of my theory. It, it's kind of like a triad. Um, part of it has to do with the superphysical bending of space. Another aspect has to do with the way that superphysical, that's outside of space and time, information becomes materialized as it passes into our realm of dimensional space. And then the mechanism by which that whole process uh, begins. And that third leg is, surprisingly, there is a cosmology that's in the Bible that describes a particular system that would give us an idea of how these things come into being. Would you be able to cite an example that, that's, that, that could be found in, in, in a, a particular chapter in, or verse in the Bible that uh, would illustrate that point? Well, uh, in the limited time that we have on a broadcast, I can give a very broad, uh, basic idea of what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, please. Um, our understanding of God, at least from a biblical perspective, is we're talking about a being who is all-knowing, all-seeing, is eternal has no beginning or end, in other words, without time and without dimension. Exists outside and, time and space. I'm sorry? Exists outside time and space. Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, um, you know, atemporal and a-dimensional. in other words, there's nothing timed or spaced about uh, God at all. But he's also considered a pure, absolute substance. Uh, in a sense. There's no change or variation. Now, imagine that type of a being deciding to that he is going to create a physical universe, a universe that has a beginning and an end, that has dimensions that actually can be uh, measured, that has variations and changes throughout. Things get created and things get destroyed. Something essentially almost exact opposite to his nature. Well, the first problem he's going to have is where are you going to create such a realm? He cannot create it within himself because it would not sustain itself within him. His nature is so opposite to it that anything that would be quote-unquote corruptible would immediately be destroyed in his presence. Right. So the first problem he would have is to create a realm outside of himself. So that would be the first step, so that this corruptible dimensional creation could be sustained. The second step that he would have is the expression of dimensions, uh, spatial and temporal. The actual term dimension means measurability. There has to be differences between here and there, or then and now, in order to have dimensions and measurability. Right. But he himself 
has no differences. So the second thing that he would have to do is to create an adversary. He would have to have an antithesis to himself. And in clashing or conflicting with that antithesis would create the pre-dimensional waves that would ultimately give rise to physical reality. And we know in physics that every piece of matter and energy in the universe has a wave function. But we just simply don't know where these guide waves, as, as uh, Louis de Broglie uh, talked about in the early 20th century, we have no idea where these guide waves come from that give rise to physical material. And so this kind of a model from the Bible actually gives us an idea where that would have come from. Does the Bible... I, I remember a, a conversation I had um, with the author of a book on Bible codes. I, uh, I believe it's Chuck Misler. And he... Uh, I can't recall the, the chapter and verse, but he, he said that in the Bible... Uh, there was actually a description of, um, you know, a multidimensional universe beyond the, you know, the the, um, the four that, w- that we're aware of, uh, and and uh, the the chapter, the, the particular passage talked about scrolling back the heavens, and when you think of, uh, uh, the, you know, scrolling. Uh, I, I've heard that term scrolling or, or uh, described. In by, by physicists or, or theoretical physicists in attempting to describe what one of these other dimensions, and I think they're now talking about what an additional eleven other theoretical dimensions out there. Oh, it depends on what version of string theory that you're talking right, about. Right. Right. Um, one of the uh, there, and as, as you may know, there are a number of of unresolvable. Uh, quandaries with string theory, which is why it's not been accepted as a viable theory of everything. And I argue that the reasons why is because, once again, people are trying to explain a physical universe uh, with aspects that seem to be non-physical, but they try to explain it in a physical way. So when we're talking about dimensions, we're talking about something physical. In my book, I've done away with that idea of higher dimensions or extra dimensions because it just scientifically doesn't make sense. Anything out of our four dimensions is not measurable, and so it's not dimensional, and that's one of the problems string theory has with 11 uh, uh, dimensions or 23 dimensions. They cannot explain how those things are folded up into our four well, you know, the, the, the hubris of the, what I would generally call, the, you know, the materialists, that they've got it all figured out, considering, uh, depending on, on uh, the scientists, the, the universe is comprised of anywhere between 83 and 95 percent dark matter, uh, which we know virtually nothing about, and it's, uh, you can't even detect it with, uh, with a telescope. So 90, somewhere between 83 and 95 percent of the universe is invisible. Yes, and what I've come to the conclusion to, and I'm not the only person who has come to this conclusion, is that dark matter simply doesn't exist. Ah. Even those who propose it, they may present it to the public as if it's an absolute established fact. But there's no more evidence for dark matter than coming down your uh, stairs Christmas morning 
and seeing presents under your tree and taking that as a validation of the existence of Santa Claus. <laughs> okay, point well made. We'll come back with Thomas Fusco, the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, Merging Science, the Spiritual and the Supernatural. Get on board. Questions and comments, 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere, one 866 Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Thomas Fusco uh, stays with us for the hour. Now, uh, Thomas, um, I, I want to ask you about uh, subatomic particles and um, the neutrino. Some, some have called them nature's ghost particles. They, uh, apparently they can travel, uh, some say, faster than light. They can, they can pass through solid objects. Um, I mean, is, is that where you're going with, with, you know, maybe explaining certain paranormal events like hauntings that could they be comprised of neutrinos? Is that what we're talking about? Well, actually not. Um, I know that some months ago, uh, CERN over in Europe had recorded a finding that they had detected faster than light neutrinos. And this is what got into the public mainstream news because it was sensational. What didn't get published in the mainstream news was all the problems with that. And the general consensus of the scientific community is that's a false reading. There's something wrong with their experiment. Uh, To make a long story short, uh, if what their findings were turns out to be true, then for decades, physicists have been getting the right answers and the right solutions using all the wrong mathematics. Okay. pretty much impossible. All right, so uh, then with this framework that you're offering up, how would you then explain ghosts? I'm sorry, I'm... You faded out a little bit, Richard. I'm sorry. I didn't okay. Hear you. Uh, then tell us how, using your framework, you would explain uh, apparitions, hauntings, and so forth. Okay. What I've done is I've accepted the evidence in front of our eyes, so to speak, uh, without trying to force everything that we see into a physical material explanation. Specifically, what I'm talking about is gravity. Gravity has been the bone in science's throat for a long, long time. Uh, Einstein failed to balance his unified field equations because he couldn't express gravity in four dimensions. The one thing that prevents us from reconciling relativity and quantum physics is gravity. Our standard model, capital S, capital M, that physics uses for the universe 
that lists all the particles and all their interactions has no expression for gravity. In order to come up with a material explanation for gravity, they need all three particles, dark matter, graviton, and Higgs boson, and they haven't been able to nail down any one of them. And there's other anomalies with gravity, too. So I just assumed that what we see is actually that gravity does not have a material physical cause. Now, once we take that into consideration, we can consider what the consequences would be of the bending of space, which is associated with gravity, but that the space could be bent without having a physical cause from outside of space-time, as, as Theodore Calusa said. So when we take that bending of space and bring it inside of a haunted house and say, okay, let's say we have a bubble of space-time expanding inside of the house, the phenomena that that would cause is exactly what paranormal researchers and investigators witness. Uh, in other words, um, they're, they're in some... Uh, inside some building where where gravity is being bent, uh, and what they're witnessing then is a, f- a fleeting glimpse of what the past, the future, not necessarily the spirit of a deceased individual coming back, but they're seeing someone in another time. Well, we have two aspects of it, and I think we're. Uh, I found that it's best to describe one before the other. The first would actually be the crucible, the jar, the container in which material would manifest. The second part would be the information that enters into that container that materializes so that we see an apparition, hear a disembodied voice. Um, But to talk about the first part of it, if we had, if you imagine a bubble of space-time opening up and expanding inside of regular space in a haunted house where there's material. And by material, I mean, for example, uh, air molecules. Let's take the air, for example. The first thing that that crushing and bending of space would do is excite the electrons inside the molecules of the air. The electrons would jump up into their higher orbits. And then when they expended that excitation, you would have a couple effects. The first thing it would do is, cre- is create an electromagnetic field. And so we see in investigations these electromagnetic fields literally appear out of thin air. And this would cause that. Another thing that these electrons would do when they drop into their lower orbits is that they would release photons. This is very understandable. We use it today in light-emitting diodes. That's exactly how an LED works. It excites electrons through an electromagnetic field, and when the electrons drop back down in their lower orbits, they emit photons. That's an LED. And the other thing it would do is release thermal energy. And that thermal energy would perfectly explain some of the uh, thermal images that people have captured with thermal cameras in paranormal sites. So uh, if we have an expanding bubble that is coated with an electromagnetic field and is emitting photons, 
I just perfectly described what they call a luminous orb. True. What about the what about the the uh, the sudden drop in, in temperature people often report in a haunted location? Well, this is the beauty about this theory. Again, we can't see the effect out in the vacuum of space with the bending of space, but on Earth, where there's atmosphere, where there's material, we can see that the effect of a bubble of space time expanding and opening up would create an actual vacuum inside of it. Now, if it happened very slowly, the surrounding air molecules and the heat energy that they contain would gracefully fill in the vacuum very quickly, and we would hardly notice any difference. It's like water seeking its own level. But if that bubble expanded dramatically and very quickly, it would be like opening up your front door very quickly on a cold winter's day. You would create a vacuum. You'd have an inrush of air. Uh, you would have an, an, an inequilibrium between what's inside and what's outside. So if that bubble opened up quickly like that, you would get a temporary cold spot. That's exactly what they see. Uh, Another thing that you would get is that you would have air rushing in, and you would get one of these mystery breezes that they feel, where they feel a breeze go by real quick with no windows or doors open. Yes. So this is another way that this particular model answers all these kinds of uh, phenomena in a consistent way. The other cool thing about this, which is what's really causing a stir in the paranormal community over this, is that there are countless reports of people saying that on the onset of a paranormal event that they say the room feels heavy. Uh, they have a feeling of heaviness. Yes. And, Richard, it's not like ten people giving six different subjective impressions of a sensation. It's like 999 out of 1,000 people use the word heavy. We all know what that means, so when everybody's using it, it means something very specific. Well, this bending of space would create an additional gravitational field that would add to the gravitational field of the Earth and it would result in people feeling literally a feeling of heaviness. Why would this bending of space occur in some locations uh, and not others? For example, uh, these you know these hauntings uh, occur in a location that has an, you know sort of an attached history to it, uh, maybe a violent death, like on a, a civil war battlefield, or um, you know the occupant. Uh, suffered a violent death at the hands of uh, a mister, a mistress or, or something like that. There's always an, a, you know, a history attached. It happens in those locations. It doesn't happen in a, necessarily in a, in a brand new apartment complex. Uh, does, your, can your, does your theory sort of explain that? In part. Part of it, it does give some hard answers. Part of it is, is, is a speculation on my part. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, If we're talking about a whole area or a whole segment of reality, uh, let's say like a haunted house and the people that occupied it, um, comprised a body of coherent information that was stored and maintained outside of space-time, then it would be natural to assume that the intelligences that were very strongly associated 
with the information that comprised the surroundings would still be connected to it somehow. Uh, that's one part of it. Uh, but we still need a reason of why space would bend more, uh, more readily in that place. And I think this goes to the understanding that the human brain has the ability to change physical reality. Um, everything that we create from the computers that we're looking at right now, that the telephones we're talking to uh, or over, none of these could be natural occurrences. They're basically supernatural creations. We have the ability to take information and change it into physical reality like no other animal can. And so what I think happens is that because we have that kind of effect on our surroundings, I think that when we have very strong emotions and trauma and in a place, that it actually serves to weaken the fabric of space-time so that it acts like a metal that's been fatigued and it makes it much easier to bend. And since that information from those traumatized intelligences is associated with those surroundings, they can more easily bend that space, and that's how we get haunted houses. It's fascinating. Thomas P. Fusco is the author of Beyond the Cosmic, or sorry, Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality. Now, uh, but you're not talking merely about, you know, exciting electrons uh, and, and so forth. You, you, you just mentioned that certain intelligences uh, could be attached to a location. Now, is that to suggest, because, I mean, people are obviously measuring uh, things beyond just, you know, drops in temperature or reporting this, this, feel, this heaviness, a feeling of, you know, dread or foreboding or whatever it is. Um, they're also talking about, you know, full-blown apparitions and, 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 uh, and, and voices. Yes. Uh, so how does your framework explain that? Well, the, uh, the voices is what is most exciting about this, because a gentleman named David Roundtree, who is an, uh, is an, an engineer, and he's uh, almost completed his doctorate in physics, has actually conducted the experiments that confirm my model. And so let's, uh, let's take what they call EVP for a second, Richard, uh, and disembodied voices and look at that very quickly. Electronic voice phenomenon. Yes, this is where, um, you know, strange voices are recorded on uh, uh, recorders that are normally not heard by the uh, witnesses at, or at that same site. They're not audibly heard, but sometimes they are. So if you take my model, if you recall that this swelling of space would produce an electromagnetic field, and you heard me refer to the idea that information can enter in from outside of space-time and begin to materialize within these bubbles of space-time, imagine an intelligence that is disembodied, but when it tries to speak in its disembodied intelligence, it generates information that would be according to what it's trying to speak. And imagine if that information began to materialize in one of these bubbles so that the very surface of the fabric of space of that bubble would begin to vibrate according to that materializing intelligence. What this would do, Richard, it would do two things depending on the frequency. The first thing it would do 
is it would agitate the air just like a set of vocal cords, but on a much weaker level, so that the fabric of space is almost acting like a speaker. And it's vibrating the air, and we hear a voice out of thin air. But the other thing that it would do, and here's what's so exciting, because uh, uh, Mr. Roundtree has already ver verified this experimentally, is that since it's giving off an electromagnetic field, when that surface vibrates, that electromagnetic field will also oscillate, just like the electromagnetic signal coming from a needle from a phonograph. And it would transmit that electromagnetic frequency through the air, which would impose itself. It would resonate with the copper coils that are connected to the recorder's microphone. It doesn't affect the diaphragm, but the copper coils. It induces itself directly into those coils, and the recorder picks up the voice, just like, a, like the record player picks up the signal coming from the needle. And yet it's not heard in the air because it's an electromagnetic phenomenon. Fascinating. Now, just to be clear, so you're, you're saying that this bending of, of, of space in certain locations uh, and exciting electrons and protons and so forth is not merely just producing a phenomenon that one could uh, confuse for a ghost. You're suggesting here that at the, at the root of this uh, is... I mean, that you believe or, 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 or know uh, scientifically that the, the, uh, the consciousness survives physical death. I would say that the consciousness uh, is, is a collection of coherent information that is dynamic and interacts in a way that we would express as intelligence that that same superphysical, extraphysical information not only exists while we're alive, but it also exists after we pass out of this physical form, because it was the very information that actually created our physical form. Now, is, it, is a ghost a, an, an echo? Is it, is it uh, you know, the repository of all of the memories, of all of the thoughts, of all of the actions of a person while he was alive? In other words, it's the envelope. It's not the actual contents. It's, so in that sense, it's, it doesn't have consciousness. Or is a ghost, um, uh, is a ghost actual, actually conscious, I guess is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Well, the best way that I can try to describe this is to uh, talk about a, a, a simple parapsychological phenomenon called telepathy. Mm -hmm. And what we see, to try to reduce it in its simplest terms, we have thought, which is intelligent, and we see a physical manifestation of that thought in the electrochemical processes of our brain. Now, that thought is information, it's intelligent information, and it gets transferred to another mind, let's say brain B, independently of its electrochemical component in brain A. Otherwise, what we would talk about would be kind of like a Star Trek teleportation of the electrochemical elements from brain A to brain B. That's not what happens. It's only the superphysical information that gets transferred to B, and interestingly, once that intelligent thought enters into 
brain be, it automatically materializes the same electrochemical elements that were in brain A. Right, minus verbal communication. Uh, yes, because it would have to, you know, uh, be a coherent, uh, a sufficient collection of information to create a subsystem of speech. We're just talking about individual thought. Right, right, okay. But the process that I described is exactly the way information that comprised a person who lived 150 years ago can enter back into our physical space-time and materialize in a bubble of space-time where we would actually see a partial materialization of that information coming to us from 150 years in the past. Ah, so again, that would that sounds like to me what you're saying is that that's, that person is gone, uh, but they're the 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 residue of their thoughts are sort of available on an endless loop, if you will. Well, I don't know whether I would call it an endless loop, because again, we're speaking about a realm outside of space time, where time, space, are physical. Uh, uh, dimensional conceptions doesn't really play in the same way. What I would say is this, is that the very same information that materialized uh, and and the, the original living person of 150 years ago is also materializing partially so that we see an apparition. But from where that information is coming from, it's above the speed of light, it's above space-time, so that dimensions are so collapsed in on themselves that there's almost no difference between 150 years ago and now. Quick, um, just a quick answer on this one, and we'll go into a break. We'll come back and we'll talk miracles. But we talked about EVPs. What about live two-way communication between um, the here and the now and whatever lies beyond, uh, you know, the, 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 the veil. Uh, in other words, is it possible to have two-way conversations with the dead? Under certain conditions, uh, let's put it this way. Under certain conditions, what I believe is that, yes, communication can be made with ethereal intelligences. The only problem is, Richard, we can't say for sure who it is. In other words, that information is like you sitting at a computer in a library. You have access to every piece of information on that hard drive. That doesn't mean that since it's talking in the voice of dead Aunt Mary, that it's actually dead Aunt Mary who's using and commanding that information. I'm reading you loud and clear. Yes. <laughs> Back with uh, more of my conversation, Thomas Fusco, the author of Beyond, behind the Cosmic Veil, a new vision of reality, merging science, the spiritual, and the supernatural. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Welcome back, Thomas Fusco, Behind the Cosmic Veil. Um, let's talk about uh, miracles. Um, let's, uh, for example, uh, go back uh, 2,000 years and uh, the biblical accounts in the New Testament of Jesus Christ um, healing the blind, healing the maimed with a simple touch. Uh, how would your new framework, uh, an understanding of the, the universe, uh, explain what happened? Well, that's very interesting, uh, because it, it, the, this model does reveal uh, some of the mechanism that could be responsible. For example, the healing of the man with the withered hand. According to my model, the information that would comprise a perfectly whole hand exists outside of space-time. But our physical world is corruptible, and sometimes things interfere with that, that information being materialized fully. So that the blueprint, so to speak, that was necessary for the hand to be made whole already exists. It's just a matter of making that information fully materialize in that location. Um, another uh, type of a miracle which gives us an understanding of what's going on uh, is when Jesus uh, fed the thousands of people with five loaves and two fishes. Now, it doesn't say he multiplied them into other loaves and fishes. It says that everybody was fed with the same five loaves and the same two fishes. Well, each one of those objects have what I call a super geometric blueprint that can be reproduced in different places in space at the same coordinate in time. So what Jesus did was materialized those blueprints over and over and over again thousands of times, but it was still the same five loaves and two fishes. What's interesting about that is that it doesn't violate the conservation laws that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, because nothing new was created. It's the same five loaves and two fishes. I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. What kind of individual would be able to command those forces? I mean, I have my theory. Uh, um, I believe, you know, he was who he said he was. But how do you explain it? Well, uh, that's something that uh, I would say is a, like you would think, is a religious answer. The only answer I have is that he was indeed the epitome of the materialization of the creator of the universe that his image most closely resembled that image. And so he was so directly connected to that that he was able to do these things. One of my favorite um, subjects, uh, and I talk about it um, usually once, once a year around Easter, and that is uh, uh, the relic known as the Shroud of Turin, which is reported to be the actual burial cloth of, of Jesus Christ, which many believe, actually contains evidence of a resurrection event. What are your thoughts on that? My personal belief is that I believe that the Shroud is genuine. And that's based solely on the accumulation of all the evidence and the arguments back and forth concerning it 
Um, I think that it is virtually impossible with the information that's on that cloth to have it be some sort of a medieval forgery. There's details on it that were not even understood until modern times. Uh, So I think it's the genuine article. Now, whether it is created by a supernatural effect or the image was created by some natural effect that we're unfamiliar with, I really don't know. You, you talk of a listen. Why don't do, uh, I think I owe a break here? Do I? No, we just had a break. Okay, we're fine. We'll go right to the top of the hour with uh, Thomas Fusco, the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil. Um, you, you talk of a the, the coming of a future where we'll have some sort of super technology by which we'll be able to create anything we can imagine. What do you mean by that? Well, here's part of my uh, new paradigm, and it's kind of a straightforward. It's just not normally thought about it this way before. Um, It is a scientific principle that every system is determined by, established by, and its behavior dictated by a given set of laws and principles, even if we don't understand what those laws and principles are. And the example I use is a standard deck of cards. There are laws and principles that establish that there's 52 of them, that there are four suits, and there are 13 values per suit. Now, you could come up with an almost infinite variety of games and rules and deal a dizzying array of different kinds of hands from it, but everything that's derived from it ultimately will have to be in accordance with the laws that govern the establishment of that deck of cards and how it's constructed. You would never deal a set of hands or make up a set of rules that operated in conflict with those principles or outside of them. You would not have a 14 of clubs or a suit of Chevrolets or something like that. So if we take that with the human brain, um, the human brain is a subset of the universe. The universe has a set of given laws and principles by which it operates. We don't understand them all yet, but we know that it, it's only, there's only one way that it was put together. Uh, that without which we can see. So the human brain being a subset of the physical universe means that it's built according to the same principles and the same laws, which means, Richard, it cannot operate in a way that's contrary to those laws or outside of those laws. That means the very idea that we can conceive and image something in this brain means that that conception and that image must be consistent with the laws that created the physical structure in which those things are uh, being conceived, which means that anything that we can imagine is physically possible. All we need to do is to find the technology necessary to convert that information directly into materialized reality. Well, uh, we, you know, we are told that we are we were made in the likeness of the Creator, so that means we are co-creators. Uh, and Jesus, of course, said, you know, you, you know, you will do greater things than I am doing. Is is that sort of the same thing you're talking about? Yes, we are the only creatures that can take invisible information 
and transform it, materialize it into physical reality. Now, we don't look at it this way normally. We sort of take it for granted. But if you look throughout the universe, I bet you you will not find an IBM computer or a 57 Chevy that self-assembled itself. We actually are supernatural beings that are constantly materializing supernatural forms in the physical universe. So we do it all the time. It's part of our physical construction. It's not that far of a stretch to imagine that there must be a way to directly materialize these forms without the use of our physical hands. Uh, I have a, a, a friend who's visited um, um, an ashram in, in India many times and um, uh, is an adherent to um, a particular yogi over there. And he says he's witnessed this yogi materialize uh, coins, gold coins, out of thin air, uh, and also witnessed this particular yogi uh, bring someone back from the dead who was basically blue, dead for hours. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on on that? First, the materialization. Well, the the. Uh, um I cannot comment on whether such a thing happened or not. None of us really can, except the witnesses. What I can say, according to my model of the universe that I've come up with, that both of these things would be very understandable and would be possible. I again, I'm oversimplifying because that's you know my, that's the way I understand uh, uh, quantum mechanics, but. Tell me if I'm on the right track here. Uh, and you go back to, was it the, the double-slit experiment where uh, sometimes a wave behaves like a particle and sometimes a particle uh, behaves like a wave depending on the observer? In other words, we can, we can make subatomic particles behave in certain ways simply by observing them. Uh, and so if that's the case... Um, and I'm thinking to books like, you know, the, the very popular that came out, to, like The Secret... Uh, and, and through the power of intention, you know, we can create our own reality because at the subatomic level, we really are. We are, you know, simply by observing something, it changes its behavior or the way that it acts. Yes. Uh, the, uh, my model does describe how that could be. The two-slit experiment is actually something that's far more complex and deeper. Um, but the two-slit experiment gives us the evidence, according to David Bohm and Louis de Broglie, uh, who wrote that great paper back in 1923 about guide waves, that there is a fundamental wave uh, function that actually unfolds in the physical reality that when we see the anomalies of things like quantum mechanics and, two, and the two-slit experiment, that the reason why it seems mysterious to us is because we can't see the underlying matrix of waves and the information that connects all these things into one whole. I, I get, I'm thinking back to, uh, for example, miracles, miracles or, or, or spontaneous healings. If, in fact, a disease or some sort of an ailment or affliction could be reduced to essentially a waveform. And if an observer is able to turn 
a waveform into a, a, a particle or vice versa. I mean, could we not simply by observing and, and through our, uh, the power of intention collapse a waveform, which is a disease? In other words, that might explain how uh, these spontaneous healings occur? I, it wouldn't be along the lines how I would see it. How would you see it? Yeah, what I would see again, once again, we're talking about uh, that a condition has been established by which superphysical information is being materialized in the physical. Uh, so consequently, that system can be reversed, that direction can be reversed, and things can be dematerialized from the physical by reversing the polarity of that process, so to speak. So, uh, for example, if we had somebody that, let's say, had a diseased heart, the information for the healthy heart exists. If it was materialized at that, at that physical location, uh, that heart would become healthy again. Fascinating. How can people get a hold of uh, Behind the Cosmic Veil, Thomas? Uh, you can find all the information about the book, related articles, uh, schedules of where I'll appear on on uh, future interviews, and links on how to obtain the book. You'll also find an email address that you can contact me directly if you want. I answer all my emails. All that can be found at www.cosmicveil, that's spelled V-E-I-L, Cosmicveil. I've also linked up to your site on my homepage at richardserrett.com. Thomas, a real pleasure. I wish we had more time. We'll do it again, and we'll delve further. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I really had fun. My pleasure. Thomas Fusco, Behind the Cosmic Veil. My thanks to David Gaskin for production and all of you for uh, listening. Uh, back next week. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.